Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. For the past several weeks, we've been focusing on episodes that can help us get to know ourselves better, really understand what drives us and what we really want so that we can create lives that bring us fulfillment. Over the past several months of reading about personal fulfillment, one word kept cropping up in the reading again and again. Values. Values are the fundamental core beliefs that guide our behaviors and goals, and they're usually what we use to measure the overall success of our lives. Our values help us prioritize what's important in our lives over what is trivial or what doesn't matter much. When we're living in a way that prioritizes our values, we feel content and fulfilled. We feel less stressed and overwhelmed because we don't feel like we have to do it all. We realize that we only have to do what is important. And because we prioritize the things that mean the most to us, we feel more successful, whatever our definition of that word is. The problem is most of us aren't conscious of our values. I mean, if I asked you what your top five to 10 values are and how they drive your decisions, would you be able to answer? I mean, would you be able to tell me without hesitation why you do what you do? What drives your priorities and behaviors? If you said no, you aren't alone. Studies have found that many people struggle to name their values. Kevin and I are still working with this, and yet it's so important if we want to create lives that are meaningful and fulfilling by our own standards. I mean, we've all heard of people who were quote-unquote successful by all different kinds of standards who felt like something was missing. These people likely needed to re-examine their core values and adjust their priorities to fit those values. This is also true for those of us who feel like we're lacking purpose and motivation in life. If you're walking through life feeling directionless or drained, it might be time to get curious about the programming running in your subconscious. The truth about our values is whether we know it or not, we're all directing our lives by a specific set of values. But if we're feeling out of sorts with life, it's likely because we're living by a set of values that we no longer want. Most of us are still operating by the dominant values we were taught as young children from our families, our religion, our society as a whole. And the values you learn in childhood remain with you throughout your adulthood unless you make the choice to consciously reprogram your value system. Now, I'm currently reading a book by Scott Adams, who is the cartoonist that created Dilbert. And it's called How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. And he had this hypothesis that I really like when I'm thinking about values and limiting beliefs and just reprogramming the things that happened in my childhood, right? Like deconstruction. He has a hypothesis called the moist robot 
hypothesis. And I know for many of you, that word moist is really triggering, but his idea is that many of us look at ourselves as these magical bags of skin where lots of things happen inside of us that we don't understand. And we can use wishful thinking to just kind of hope that things get better. But he said that that often doesn't happen. Instead, if we look at ourselves as moist robots, like meat robots, if you will, with programmable abilities, that if we can change the inputs that we get different outputs. And you and I both know humans are way more complex than that. But I think that there's a grain of truth to this whenever it comes to our value system, to limiting beliefs, to just all kinds of things. We can think of our value system as sort of a background program that is running in our brains. And like computer programming, sometimes something unwanted gets put in the code and it makes the whole program function in ways that were unintended. So today we're going to make the code visible so we can see where it needs to be edited and corrected so that our moist robot works more efficiently. Now, before we begin to get curious with those questions, however, I want to remind you that I host a live discussion every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. In these video discussions, we dig deeper into the podcast topics together as a community. Listeners ask questions, we get curious, and we problem solve together. And probably most importantly, we build friendships and community with one another. These hour-long calls are open to all monthly donors, no matter the amount you donate. If you've been longing to talk about these topics with others going through the same deconstruction process as you, go to emancipateyourmind.org, look on the right-hand side of the page if you're on your desktop, or look at the bottom of the page if you're on your phone for the box that says support the podcast and give a gift. Select the amount you'd like to contribute each month and you'll be automatically added to the list on the 5th of the next month. But if you'd like to be included in the weekly calls sooner, please send us an email after you've donated at terry at emancipatedcoaching.com with the subject, I donated, and we'll get you on the list within 48 hours. Now, let's get back to that programming that's running in the background of our lives directing all of our feelings of success, directing all of our feelings of failure, directing the decisions we make on a day-to-day basis. These values are communicated to us two ways in childhood. The first way is explicitly. It's what is taught to you intentionally and usually with words. So These are values that are written down where you can review them. They're repeated over and over, and they're usually communicated with words. Now, when I think about the high demand religious setting and Christianity in particular, I think the most visible set of explicit values that I can think of is the Ten Commandments. I mean, all of us, if I said the Ten Commandments, what are the values? You and I could go through and list all 10 of them you know, worshiping only God, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, no extramarital sex, no killing, no stealing, et cetera, right? And from the Ten Commandments, you know, what we can pull out is that, you know, God first. Even if you look on Christian websites today, if you look up Christian values, 
God first is one of the things that comes up the most. Extramarital sex will come up as purity culture speak, chastity, um, keeping yourself sexually pure. No cussing or language. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. This is this will also include other foul language. No killing. So, you know, we value life. You see that a lot in the kind of abortion rhetoric as well. Because politicians have been so successful at framing the abortion argument within the context of the Christian value of not killing, that is why it's so successful, in my opinion, is because they have tapped into this deep underground programming that killing is never okay, even though I know that there are flaws in that logic that can be pointed out left and right. But I'm just This value system is really, really powerful. If people can tap into your value system or if you can tap into your value system, you can make something feel a lot more passionate and a lot more motivating than if you don't tap into that value system. And then, of course, no stealing, right? In Mormonism, the greatest, I think, example that I have of explicit values are the articles of faith. So within the articles of faith, Like in Article 3, obedience is one of the very first values that is laid out as a Mormon value. It's explicitly stated, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel, which we know means obedience to the church and its leaders within the context of Mormonism. You would never be able to be like, well, I heard God say this to me, so I'm going to follow that. I understand the gospel this way, so I'm going to follow that and be obedient to that. There, There is no personal authority. This is obedience to authority, aka church authority. Other values that are in the Articles of Faith, um, ordinances are really important to Mormonism. Specifically, LDS ordinances performed by ordained men. So not only are ordinances kind of codified, in this explicit value language, but also patriarchy is codified in the articles of faith. So it must be men that are called of God and laying on the hands, not women. Continuing revelation, religious tolerance in article 11, allowing all men to worship God according to the dictates of their own conscience, letting them worship how, when, or what they may. I would argue that even though it is codified in the Articles of Faith that this doesn't always come across as a value. And I would even argue that it's actually not a value because of something we're going to talk about a little bit later. Obeying the laws of the land, that's in Article 12. So being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and obeying and sustaining the laws of the land. Honesty and truth, chastity, Being benevolent and doing good to all men, all of those are found in Article of Faith number 13. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this here in just a second. Now, I want you to take some time to reflect. What values were you explicitly taught as a child at home, in Sunday school, in kindergarten, or through media like TV or music? So I really do encourage you to take each of these 
categories. Think of all of the different systems you were involved in as a child. And when I say a child, I mean everything from from the moment you were born up until even like your young adulthood. I'd like you to think about like religiously, what were you explicitly taught? What rules can you think of? What values were communicated to you? What phrases were said over and over again to like get it stuck inside your brain? And then what were you taught in kindergarten? Like in the education system, what about in high school, in middle school, college? I know that there were several values that were communicated to me between the age of 18 and like 23 when I was at BYU that kind of became part of my value system that maybe weren't a part of my value system whenever I was younger because I was part of a church that was largely converts and because I moved a lot. But what were the values that were communicated again and again? I got a lot of values about modesty and purity culture specifically from BYU, as well as a lot of values about my role as a woman. Like there were a lot of values about what that was supposed to look like. And it definitely changed my behavior. And then also take some time and really think about what values were communicated through media, magazines, television, movies, and music. Because Our media is where we really do communicate explicitly a lot of the values of our society. And there's been a lot of good talk about this for the last couple of years. For this exercise, I want you to just focus on the explicit words. But in the next exercise, I'd like you to take time and reflect on behaviors that communicate values as well. Some of the ones that came up for me were the golden rule. Would you like it if someone did that to you? Then don't do it to them. I was often told, Terry, be nice. So there were different, you know, interpretations of what nice meant, but I know that lots and lots of us were taught to be nice, no matter what, to turn the other cheek, to be nice even when someone is mean. So being nice and doing unto others the way I would like them to do to me. These were communicated explicitly. And then I also think of the Young Women's theme. Young Women's is the group for girls between, when I was in Young Women's, it was between 12 and 17. So you had 12 to 17-year-old girls that were in this group. And, you know, we were treated as teenagers and, and really like prepared for Mormon adulthood, I guess. But Young Women's, I think, has been lowered down to 11 years old. Yeah, that's definitely true. I have nieces in that age range. So um, it's been lowered down to 11 years old. So 11 to, you know, 17-year-olds. Once you turn 18, you got to go to Relief Society. That's just how it is. And you got to go be with your mom. They do allow you to stay, you know, throughout the rest of your high school career. It's not like if you turn 18 in December on your senior year that they're like, hey, you're going up with the older ladies. So you get to stay until you turn 18 or until you graduate high school, whichever one comes later. Um, But there was a theme 
that we would stand up and we would say every single week. And it communicated a lot of values. Some of the values were missionary work, standing as a witness of God at all times, in all things, and in all places. So missionary work or proselytizing or just like being an example was a value that was instilled into me. Um, Being prepared to strengthen home and family. So the value there was being moms and housewives. Some could say that the value there was family. Making keepsake or covenants. So getting married in the temple. That's what's actually being communicated there to the women. And enjoy the blessings of exaltation, which for young women, this is speak for staying faithful and obedient to the church, to our husbands for the rest of our lives. So what about you? What were some of the things explicitly expected of you in your family, religious, and societal systems? If you didn't take time earlier, take that time now and really allow yourself to think about that. Because so often, if you're like me, you hear this, it goes in your ears. And if you don't take the time to actually really get curious with it, this is going to stay this kind of subconscious, unclear idea that you don't have language wrapped around. And until we make the implicit explicit, until we really get clear about what that programming is, until we can see, you know, what's actually written on the screens of our brains, we can't change it. We have to be aware of it. We have to be conscious of it. We have to have language for it before we can change it. So take some time and reflect what were the values you were taught. My guess is you had specific language taught to you about your behavior when it came to being a good person and what that looked like. You had language taught to you explicitly about what it meant to be either a man or a woman. You probably had language specifically taught to you about sex, mating, um, marriage, and those kind of rituals, which may have included, you know, body shape and size. It may have included dress and grooming. It may have included just all kinds of things. You were likely taught values around money and business and work and education. So many values. So lots to get curious with here. All right. The next way that we're taught our values is implicitly. We learn by observing the behaviors of others. And we specifically learn what behaviors our certain culture, whether family, religious, or societal, we learn which behaviors our culture rewards and which behaviors our culture punishes. So it's not that we're just watching other people's behavior and, you know, picking up values in this kind of like nebulous way. Our brains are incredibly amazing computers. They are storing the patterns of what gets us the most recognition, praise, acceptance, validation, power, money, uh, resources. Our brains are looking for those things. And we're noticing this from the time we are tiny. What gets the people around us the most acceptance? What gets the people around us the most love and recognition, food, all of that? 
And it pays attention to those behaviors and creates values from what we notice is being rewarded and what we notice is being punished. This is survival. Our brains are looking for the patterns that make it most likely for us to survive, to be included in the group, to be recognized, to be given resources so that we can thrive and flourish. And you are no different. You learned these values the very same way. So before I get into specifics, I want you to think about the various cultures you came from. And I want you to think about what did you implicitly learn? So for instance, in my household, I got super celebrated whenever I got straight A's, whenever I got academic awards, whenever I was well-spoken or I sounded really intelligent. I learned that education was hugely important to my family. If we're looking at society as a whole, I just finished the book Token Black Girl by Danielle Prescott, and she talks about the rewards and punishments within the fashion industry and within Western society. She talks about what beauty ideals are rewarded, who gets hired, who gets published, who gets invited back for interviews, who is seen as a fashion icon, who is seen as like the hot person to follow who sets the trends. Those are all rewards within our beauty and fashion industry. And those are communicated to us through media, through the magazines we read, through the movies we watch, through the television shows we watch, who shows up on the news. All of these things are communicated to us implicitly and we gain values from them. Up until recently, I didn't realize I was operating off of Western societal values in like beauty and fashion, I guess, that valued youth, that valued being super, super skinny, that valued always having, you know, really up-to-date clothing. And I found some of those values and pulled them up to the forefront. And now I get to decide what I want to do with those. And I'm re-evaluating some of those values and deciding, do I want to live my life by those? Or are there other things that I would rather live my life by? I would like you to do the same. Really get curious. Again, with all of those different aspects of life, what was valued? And you can tell by what was rewarded and what was punished. See if you can put language to those things. All right. Now, The next problem that comes up is that sometimes what we're explicitly taught in a culture is not in sync with what we're implicitly taught in that same culture. So what's that saying? Do as I say, not as I do. But as a Stanford psychologist, Barbara Tversky says, not only do actions speak louder than words, they often happen first and faster. And she argues that to really understand how people think, we have to observe how people act. So we can say one thing with our words because this comes from our conscious brain, but subconsciously, sometimes we act in ways that are not in sync with the words that we're saying. This is super true in organizations, both business, religious, educational, and I would even say societally. Several business magazines in the past five years have published articles focused on authenticity, which is why we're doing this podcast right after my ones with Chris Peck. Because while I was researching for those podcasts, 
I was finding these articles in the business world, and I found it curious that often companies who profess a set of values publicly and in writing their explicit language, right? What they use for their PR, what they use for their newsroom broadcasts, what they use to sell themselves to the public. They have a set of values and they say, this is what we value. We value loyalty. We value honesty. We value family. We value you know, transparency, whatever it is. But their actions speak otherwise. And when this happens, businesses are often called out for being inauthentic, quote unquote. The more I thought about this in the context of high demand religious systems and narcissistic family systems, I realized this happens a lot in the cultures where we probably learned our childhood values. In fact, when you study articles published about why people are leaving Christianity and Christian adjacent religions, many people cite hypocrisy or dishonesty as big reasons for leaving. I remember I kept using the word transparency, like there's no transparency here. And actually what I meant was we're hiding a lot of our history. We are not allowing people to speak freely. We are punishing people for speaking freely. And it doesn't feel safe here, not only to speak, but it doesn't even feel safe to research. It doesn't feel safe to know. And so it feels like there's a lot of things like purposefully being hidden in our religion. And so this was a huge issue for me. It's what caused me to do my own research and ultimately what caused me to say, I can't stay here. It created a lot of anger for me once I realized that that feeling of there's something not transparent here was actually a bunch of like (laughs) hidden information that had been whitewashed over. Now, this happens when we're verbally and explicitly taught things like loving our neighbor, helping the poor and needy, and to be a good Samaritan. But then we see those who taught us these things actively doing and saying hateful things to LGBTQ folks, turning away refugees or complaining about refugees or making legislation to make it where it's not possible for us to help and house refugees and withholding money from the poor while buying another shopping mall. This was another like really huge problem for me with the LDS church. We talk so much about helping the poor and needy. And in fact, that was why I was so faithful about paying fast offerings because I was like, not only do I want my tithing to go, you know, to wherever it needs to go to help people, but I want to donate extra. I want to make sure that we're helping the poor and needy only to find out later on the tithing slip. It says that they can do whatever they want with all the money that tithing funds are to be used however they want, but also fast offering funds do not necessarily go towards people who need food or help with their electric bill or help to make their rent. They can use it to stick it into the Enzyme Peak investment fund if they want to. They don't have to use your money the way you allocated it. The president of the church can use it at his discretion in the fine print, bottom of your tithing slip. And so that felt very inauthentic for me as an organization that felt like hypocrisy. It felt like dishonesty because I had been taught explicitly sitting in the pews on Sunday over and over again, over the course of you know decades, that 
taking care of the poor and needy, taking care of widows, taking care of people who are down on their luck was what the Savior would do. And I was supposed to be like Jesus. I was supposed to ask myself, what would Jesus do? I was a teenager during that era where everybody was wearing the bracelets that said WWJD. I was, you know, at the CU at the pole rallies and at Fellowship of Christian Athletes when we were talking about what would Jesus do? And all religions were talking about caring for the poor, caring for the needy. So I don't think it is coincidence that so many people are leaving right now when there's so much evidence over the internet and over the media that those who taught us to care for the poor and needy, to embrace refugees, to be tolerant and kind and loving and compassionate and to be like Jesus suddenly are doing the opposite. They're rewarding behavior that hoards money and buys shopping malls and um, is very exclusive and doesn't invite in people who aren't part of the homogenous group and actively punishes people who talk about these things and call out the, you know, the incongruities. I think that this is why you see so many people leaving. And there's various reasons that people leave, right? But I think that there are many people seeing the incongruities. They're seeing the ways that the explicit teachings we were taught, you know, sitting in Sunday school, they don't match up with the behavior. And as they say, the the quiet parts that are now being said out loud. So I was curious how this played out in Mormonism. And I did my own, I guess, quote unquote research, which... (laughs) It's not scientific in any way, shape, or form. What I did is I asked 30 active LDS families what they thought the top five values of the Mormon church were. I reached out to people on Facebook that I'm still friends with, and I just said, hey, I'm doing a podcast, and I'm talking about values. I'd love to hear what you think the top five values of the Mormon church are, and here were their answers, and I kid you not, 30 families, I think we had like two or three words that kind of were not congruent with each other. But by and large, I got the same list back from most of these people. Love, obeying God, honesty, family, helping the poor and needy, kindness, education, personal choice. Um, Personal accountability is what one person said, but personal choice was another couple of answers. And I just kind of put those together. In fact, I got a couple of things like honesty uh, was one, integrity was another, but I kind of just like melded these together. Um, Faith was another one. So while I would say that these are the explicit values, I would have agreed with all of these as an active LDS person. These were the things I was taught, you know, that love is super important, that we love all mankind we obey God, we're honest in our dealings with our fellow men. Like that's literally the phrase I was taught. Family's the most important. In fact, if you look up on the internet, like Mormon values, what you're going to see, family is always going to be one of the, the values that is stated that Mormonism values family, perhaps above all else, that they're one of the most family friendly religions and that they put a lot of focus on family. Um, Helping the poor and needy, lots of articles about Welfare Square. And we were taught that, you know, fast offerings were super important because that was one of our main roles was to help the poor and needy. 
And then of course, kindness and education and faith. And while all of us were taught these values explicitly in Mormonism, if you have a Mormon background, I'm guessing you were taught something very similar if you grew up in an evangelical Christian background. But there are several of these that I don't actually believe are values of the LDS church, even though most of us would agree like, oh yeah, these are all the things we were taught explicitly when it comes down to the implicit values. I think a lot of times these are not actual values because they don't reward these behaviors. Some of these values that were listed, honesty, for instance, actually get punished. So let's pick that apart for just a moment because I think this helps us get even clearer about the childhood values we have. I think sometimes we feel at war. I know I definitely did when I very first started deconstructing because I would have family members being like, well, what about your values of blah, 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 blah? What about the things that we taught you as a child? Are you just going to throw those out? And the crazy thing was, is I was actually adhering to my values. That was why I was deconstructing. I had been taught explicitly certain values that had become ideals for me. And I was living my life by those ideals, integrity was an ideal and a value that, you know, really was implanted into me. And so when I realized that the organization itself was not acting in a way that was full of integrity, that had hidden many things, that was actively lying about things, then we were at odds with one another. So it wasn't that I was throwing out my LDS values whenever I started deconstructing and questioning. I was using several of those values that were on that list that my 30 friends and family like sent me. I was using education. I was using honesty. I was using personal choice. And even like it was my values of helping the poor and needy and of love that kind of drove me away from the LDS church. Like, It didn't feel like those things were valued actually in the system. But I want us to take a couple of these and just pull them apart so I can show you what I'm talking about. So let's take honesty first because we've been talking about that a lot already. Is it really a value of the LDS church? So like, let's really ask yourself these questions. If you read from the words written by the hands of the early prophets and you find contradictions to what's being taught in the Sunday school manuals and you talk about it in class, are you going to be congratulated for bringing that to light? Like, is the teacher and the rest of the class going to be like, thank you so much. I had no idea. I'm so glad you brought that to light. Or are you more likely to be reprimanded? And if you do this enough times, is it more likely you're going to be promoted to a leadership position like a bishop, which is a leader of a local congregation? Or is it more likely you're going to be called to a disciplinary council, which is where you sit before a tribunal of men? who decide whether you're guilty or not guilty. Mormon Stories podcast has episode after episode of people being excommunicated for being honest about church history, past quotes from prophets, and for bringing them up publicly instead of remaining silent. Now, let me ask you if you speak candidly, like Professor Randall Bott at BYU did, about what past prophets actually said about being Black, Will the church reward your honesty? Or will you be forced to give a public apology 
I'm forced to resign from the teaching position that earned you highest rated professor in 2008. If you're not familiar with Randall Bott, he was one of my teachers at BYU. He was actually one of the ones I enjoyed the most, even though he's probably one of the ones that indoctrinated me the most. I love the respect he showed students. He allowed us to ask any and every question without judgment. He had a photographic memory and he could send you to all these different books, which I loved. He would tell you exactly which book, exactly which page, exactly which paragraph. It was super helpful. I loved it. I was fascinated by this man's intelligence and his ability to public speak and communicate. He was awesome. And he was really honest about what was in the books. He would quote them word for word. And so a news reporter came to him. I don't remember, probably the like early 2010s, like 2011, something like that. He had been rated the highest ranked professor in the United States in 2008. And a couple years later, a uh, newspaper person came and showed him fake credentials and asked him about the church's stance on, you know, black people being able to have the priesthood and showed him these fake credentials and said that the, you know, the church had given him permission and all the teachers permission to talk. And so he did. And he used his incredible skills to quote directly from Brigham Young and from some of the other early prophets, um, some of the racist quotes and why the church had the policies that they had. And of course it made the church look bad because the church is racist and and continues to be racist. It really does. No amount of token people in leadership at the very top or makes the LDS church not racist until it publicly apologizes and like speaks about what it's actively doing to fight racism. It is still a racist church. It's still a racist organization. And so because he exposed their racism, he was forced to give a public apology and then he had to quietly resign. And it was like a huge thing about 10 years ago. And, um, before I left the church, this was, this was a problem for me. It it felt like they used him as a scapegoat for something that he was just speaking about. He didn't say the words, he just spoke about them. So by this metric, if we use what is rewarded and what is punished by this metric, the LDS does not value honesty. They do not actually believe in being honest and true as the 13th article of faith suggests. They punish honesty. They will call you to a disciplinary council. They'll release you from your tenured church position. They may publicly humiliate you if they need to, if they need you to be their fall guy or their scapegoat, and they could even excommunicate you for your honesty. Now, another value I want to talk about that I was taught explicitly was the value of family. I was taught that family came first. I told you about the young women's motto. We were taught to strengthen home and family, but When I was getting ready for a temple marriage in 2000, my non-Mormon grandmother pointed out that the LDS church doesn't really value family, or they would make sure that family, no matter what religious denomination they were, could unite for important things like weddings. She talked about the importance of tradition. She talked about the importance of family ties, and that any church that separated families during these big milestones was actually giving a different message. It wasn't that family was important. It was that something else was important. And I now know that that something else is control and obedience. And 
I have thought about this statement for the past 22 years, and I believe that she was right. The LDS church doesn't value family. And I, I say that knowing that it does to a certain extent, but I would, I would say that it's not one of its core values. I think it's one of its peripheral values, but other values come first. So there are rewards for having a family. There are rewards for getting married and having kids. Like there are certain leadership positions you cannot fulfill unless you're married. There are certain leadership positions you probably can't fill if you don't have kids after a certain age. There are things that you must do in order to be seen as a member in good standing. So to be seen as an ideal LDS family, there are certain rewards that come with marriage and kids. However, so I want you to imagine that the leadership of the church, the authority of the church came to you and said, you know, we would like you to be a bishop. Your wife had just given birth and you had three other little kids at home. And, you know, you're, you're in your mid thirties, you're in your forties, which is about the time, you know, that many people are either called to a bishop brick and some people are called to be a bishop and some men, I should say, are called to be a bishop. Or let's say that you're the woman that just gave birth. You, you could be like me. I had just had a baby when I was given leadership over the young women's program. So my husband was deployed. We had just adopted Wesley. And I was called to be in charge of like 25 young girls and, you know, charged with being this like really fun activity creator for them. Now, imagine in either of these scenarios that either my husband or I or whoever it is that you're thinking of said to the leadership, you know, I appreciate this opportunity, but I'm really wanting to focus my time and attention with my family right now. We're in a critical time with my kids' development. And, you know, I just want to make sure that I'm helping them feel securely attached to me and to my spouse. We won't be accepting any callings for the next five years. Like, can you even imagine if you come from a Mormon background being like, thanks for that leadership calling, but actually, like, I'm prioritizing family? What would happen? How would that go? Would you be celebrated or punished? Would you be offered a leadership position again? Probably not a very big one, right? Can you imagine someone like saying, you know, thanks so much for extending the call of Bishop, but right now I'm going to focus on my kids. I think this is especially true with men, but it does happen to women too. You don't say no to a calling. Obedience comes first. Obedience is a core value. Family is, I think, more of a peripheral value according to what gets punished and what gets prioritized in the LDS church. So because the LDS church has proven by their rewards and punishment system over and over again that they value obedience and service above everything else, even above the PR front that they have, that families are the most important thing to the church. Families are not the most important thing to the church obedience to church authority is. So I'm not going to say that family is not a value, that it's not important, but it's not the most important. I would say it's not even the fifth most important or even the 10th most important. Making the church look good and all of the values that go with that are 
what is most important in the church. That's obedience, that's service, that's missionary work. That's, um, I think your appearance and your dress. I think it's your education. There's all of these things that I feel like make the church look good. And those things come first. And I think having a family, like being clean cut and having a family, being married, having kids all makes the church look good. But when it comes to actually spending time with your family and prioritizing those relationships over, you know, some of the obligations that the church might want you to have, that's where you get punished because you're putting your family over the church. And often what's used is the explicit God first, then your family, then everything else. And you'll see that on many Christian websites as well, that God always comes first, but that's translated in the LDS church as the church and our authority and the way we look to society that comes first. And often that's at the expense of the health of the family. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who talked about being a child and having a father that was in some sort of male leadership position where he was gone from the home all the time and a mother in a high leadership position where she was often, you know, gone a lot as well. And kids feeling kind of like they were just dragged back and forth to church but didn't really ever get time to like sit and bond with their parents. Now, there are plenty of other people who had different experiences where they had a parent that was at home to like really bond and attach. But I mean, I even look at, you know, my own young motherhood. Kevin was deployed a lot. So the military took him from home because the military does not value family. Um, They often said that, You know, if we wanted you to have a family, there was like this saying amongst all of the like enlisted people and the officers that if the military wanted you to have a family, they would have assigned you one at basic training. Even though I think there's a PR front, even in the Air Force, that, you know, we value family, we care about family. No, (laughs) they don't. They don't care if you're getting married. They don't care if you're about to have a baby. They don't care if your wife is moving on her own. They don't care. So you get to see which behaviors are, which behaviors and things are rewarded and which ones are punished. And it's true in every single organization, including your family of origin. So today's grow work, if you want to like really milk this episode for all that it's worth, is really get clear with yourself about what values you were taught explicitly as a child with words. Who taught them to you? And then what values were implied by the behavior of those around you? What were the implicit values? What behavior got rewarded? What behavior got punished? And then I want you to take it that extra step. Did the explicit values you were taught line up with the implicit ones? Get very clear about what the actual value was if the explicit and implicit value don't line up, if the explicit value was not upheld? And then which, if any of the values, do you feel more drawn to now as an adult? So often, part of why you made the decision to deconstruct has to do with this discrepancy. You likely had two conflicting values that you were taught as a child. 
and you decided to go with one or the other of them. Just get curious about that. There's no right or wrong answer here. I don't believe that there is such a thing as wrong values. I don't think you can prioritize the wrong values. I think just being aware of your values can help you understand the decisions that you're making. And we're going to talk next week about how we can use this understanding to start to get to know ourselves better, start to edit and reframe and rewire our values if that's what we want to do, or at least just be conscious that, oh, these are my values. The ones that I got in childhood are the ones I want to live by. And now I know what they are and I can like prioritize better. All of that is okay. There is no wrong way to do this, but I do want us to get conscious about what's already in there because I guarantee you this stuff is still in there. It's still in there for me. It's still in there for pretty much all of my clients. Really get clear about what values are in there. What was I taught? What was rewarded? What was punished? Because some of you have said that you kind of feel at war with yourself. This is part of what's going on. You've got sometimes warring value systems, but sometimes you're in that place of creating new values. You've been exposed to new values. They feel really exciting, but maybe you have some of this programming in the background going, no, 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 no. We don't value that. That doesn't come first. So let's get very clear and conscious about what's going on in the background so that we can decide how we want to edit that programming and how we want to edit the inputs going into our little fleshy robot, like Scott Adams said, so that we can get more of the outputs that we want, which is a life that feels fulfilling because when we're living in alignment with our values, we feel fulfilled. We feel successful, whatever the meaning of that word is for you. And I want that for all of us. So Thank you for joining me today. I can't wait to hear what you come up with. We will deep dive into this in the Wednesday call if you would like. Can't wait to hear what you come up with and what you discover about yourself and the stories that you have. That's one of my favorite parts, the stories that you have about what you discover. And I will talk to those of you who are monthly donors on Wednesday and everyone else. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for spending your time with me. and I'll see you next Sunday.